for those of you who are attending this retreat, this weekend retreat. Congratulations for making it through the first day. You're all here. This is a good sign. Nobody bolted. And as you probably noticed, it's not necessarily the same as what your expectations might have been. Maybe not necessarily as easy as you might have thought a weekend retreat in the countryside of Devon might have been, might have looked like. When we sign up for a retreat, we have all kinds of ideas and fantasies about what that might be, and we rarely imagine the difficulty, the boredom, the struggle, the restlessness, the tiredness, and more imagine the goodies, the peace, the quiet, the bliss, the solitude, the nature, the silence. So it's always interesting what we end up getting. We usually end up getting what we need, not usually, not necessarily getting what we want or what we like. So as I said on the first night, this practice is very simple, but it's not easy. And it's not easy to come to a retreat in silence with minimal distraction to look at ourselves, to look at our experience, to look directly at our own mind and heart and to take a good honest look and see what is it like? Who am I? What am I? How am I showing up moment by moment? What's the quality of my attention? What's the quality of my awareness? And we get to perhaps look at and scratch the surface of what's going on on a little deeper level than the normal, busy, everyday-to-day reality. And again, often that's not as pretty or as desired as we might like it to be. So I'd like to congratulate people for hanging in there for the first day, because it's hard. You know, we show up with the, um, the analogy I often have is we show up to a silent retreat and the momentum of our lives is like a freight train. It's chugging along at its speed, usual speed with our usual habits and patterns and reactivities. And, and then we suddenly come into a silent retreat and all that comes to a halt. Our usual habits and distractions and props are taken away. And we have to face ourselves. And we experience the momentum of our lives as we sit the first day or two. We experience the karma vipaka, the consequences of how we live our lives. So many of you might be feeling a lot of tiredness, a lot of deep tiredness. Sometimes we come on retreat and we feel the, the, the tiredness that's in the bones, not just, oh, I didn't get enough sleep last night, but the tiredness that comes from living a life that's over full, over busy, over scheduled and sort of overtaxing on our system. And I know many of us, many of you live like that, just as a consequence of living in this culture with a job and family and responsibilities. We experience the habits of our mind. How many of you have been lost in consumed and swirling in the mind and the thinking, the planning, the restlessness the hoping, the fearing, the remembering all in million ways our mind likes to do anything but be present do anything but just simply be with ourselves and our experience because often that means experiencing different realities that we don't want to look at that we can quite easily avoid it in the business of our lives. Chogyum, Chogyam Trungpa had an expression called the spiritual warrior. He often referred to uh, people on the path as oh, this, this practice of Dharma uh, is, um, is no small feat that we need that quality of warrior energy 
to face ourselves, to face our demons, to face the challenges and struggles, to, to face our delusion, to face our suffering. And most of the time, most of the world revolves around running away from suffering, seeking pleasant experience, hoping suffering will somehow slip away. So it takes a lot of courage to do this practice. And no doubt, for many of you, there was times when the doubting mind came up. This evening I'm going to talk about the five hindrances to meditation, or what I understand as the five hindrances to liberation, which are um, common obstacles we encounter on the path, in our meditation, in our, in our life, in our practice. And one of those is doubt, which is an interesting aspect of that teaching and certainly when we come on a retreat we encounter from time to time doubt and especially when we first show up on a retreat and if this is new for you it comes up probably more frequently what am I doing here? why am I spending my weekend gazing at my navel not looking at anybody eating oatmeal and um, having a hard time how many of those thoughts went through your mind and all the different things you could have done this weekend that you didn't? Or maybe the self-doubt. I'm the only one here who has no idea what's going on. I'm the only person who can't meditate. I can't follow my breath for more than two breaths. Everybody else looks like they're doing great. And I'm the only one who's just stumbling around clueless. Or why does everybody look like a zombie? Why does everybody walk so slow? Why is everyone here so miserable? Why doesn't nobody smile? Common thought that passes our minds. As I said yesterday, when we practice with mindfulness and silence, there's a certain gravitas. There's a certain mm, solemnity uh, that can happen. It's not... Uh, just a natural consequence of slowing down and paying careful attention. And it can look very dour from the outside, even though the inner experience can be very exquisite and refined and sensitive, the outer appearance can look very unappealing. And so our doubting mind can latch onto that. We look around the dining room, and sometimes it looks like a psychiatric ward and people eating their pills and taking their bread. And, you know, it's like, what am I doing here on a Friday afternoon? Surely there's somewhere else I could be. So, I just say that just to um, name some of those things that happen that you know, we often feel very alone in our experience. And actually, all of our experience is very similar. You know, we have very similar minds, hearts, bodies that we share so much more in common than, than what we have that separates us. This is one of my favorite magazine clips that uh, a friend sent me and it has a picture of a woman meditating levitating meditating uh, several inches off the ground she has this um, headset on microphone um, headphones and it's an ad for ultra meditation and she looks very blissed out as they do in the ads and at the top of the ad it says, in 28 minutes you'll be meditating like a Zen monk. So you go, oh, that sounds cool. Look further in. And then it says, it's a push-button meditation technique. The five-level ultra-meditation system for transcendence, peak experiences, and discovering your place in the universe. So, 28 minutes. Here it is. You can sign up after the retreat. <laughs> Well, as you can see, it takes longer than 28 minutes to meditate. However, me- however a Zen monk meditates, it takes longer than 28 minutes to develop that. Maybe like 28 years in some cases. The French philosopher Pasteur once said, most of the world's problems would be solved if people could learn how to sit by themselves in a room doing nothing for several hours. It's a pretty interesting statement. 
because it's very hard to do that. How different would the world look and be if people could learn to sit with themselves and be with themselves, doing nothing, quietly, contentedly? What a radical shift there would be in this world. So as I said, I'd like to talk about the five hindrances or obstacles to to our practice, five obstacles to liberation. And again, I want to partly talk about this teaching because it can help normalize and contextualize the various struggles that we come up against in our practice. And I also want to talk about them because um, wanting to give you a sense of the transformation that's possible when we do that. So the Buddha in an oft-quoted teaching said that this mind is luminous, this mind is pure and radiant but is covered or obscured by visiting tendencies of mind, visiting habits of mind. This nature of mind is pure and naturally radiant, yet is covered or obscured by visiting habits of mind. So our practice, our Dharma practice, is really twofold, maybe threefold, but primarily twofold, to understand the truth of who we are, to understand what, it, what is this nature of mind? What is the nature of who we are that the Buddha and many of the teach, teachers afterwards have said is naturally pure, radiant, wakeful, luminous? We have uh, innate Buddha nature within us, the qualities of awakeness, of compassion, innate quality of freedom. That's our birthright yet we don't hang out in that place very often, mostly. How many of you felt luminous and radiant (laughs) and pure today? Maybe moments, we all touch moments. Since it's our nature, it's never fully obscured. Yet most of the time, we are dwelling in the realm of what's obscuring that. Just like it's a beautiful blue sky today, but it's obscured by the cloud formations. So the hindrances, the obstacles, are like the clouds, the storms that pass through. Sometimes they're just a very light filter and we can sort of see the blue sky shining through. Other times, like today, it's big storm clouds, cumulus clouds, storm clouds that feel like there's no blue sky whatsoever, that there's just gray. And it seems to go on for days as it does in England. Yet the sky is still there. The blue sky is still there. The sun is still shining through the clouds. It's always good to remember that in the middle of the storms that we get in, that that's not the whole story. And the greatest degree of suffering become, comes when we believe the clouds and the obscurations and the, and the defilements or whatever we call them is the only reality. That's our fundamental delusion. Our fundamental delusion is we forget about our true nature. And we believe in the passing show the passing storm, whatever it is. It's desire, or it's an aversion, or boredom, or doubt, or restlessness, or fear, or anxiety, or name, name the, name the mm, difficulty. And the habit of mind, the habit of the egoic mind, is to get attached and identified with that reality, believe it to be the only reality, believe it to be who we are, And we forget about a deeper truth, a deeper understanding. And that's really a way of understanding these uh, hindrances 
to uh, practice, to our liberation, is to really pay attention to when, uh, this is a key point, to paying attention to the difference between being lost in something, lost in a thought, lost in a story, lost in a mood, lost in a reactivity, lost in a state of longing or fear, versus seeing it with mindfulness, seeing it in awareness, seeing it as a conditioned, passing phenomenon that arises because of certain conditions, stays around for a while, and passes away. It's not ultimately who we are. When we see that, when, we, when we're abiding with a strong, mindful presence, we see these storms coming through. We see, oh, here comes fear. I'm lost in a story and an experience of fear and anxiety. But with mindfulness, we can see it, feel it, sense it, be with it, notice how it comes into being, notice how it stays around, notice how it places a filter over our, our reality. So when we're in fear, we look at the world through the eyes of fear. But we can be aware of that. We can be aware of how it passes, what allows it to cease. The Buddha said, all things pass into cessation. The point of this path, the, the liberation of this path, is seeing how things move into cessation. When the cessation happens, peace is available. So that's what can happen when we're present to these hindrances, these passing storms that pass through our lives. Most of the time, we lose mindfulness, we lose that clarity, and we're kind of like glue to the stuff, to the desires and the hatreds and the resistances and the restlessness and the dullness and whatever comes our way and we kind of get mired in it. And at some point, it sort of releases through our own efforts or not. And then we sort of feel a little space until the next thing comes in, often quite quickly, often so quick we don't even notice the space. So the hindrances, which are uh, sense, desire, aversion, or hatred, Restlessness, sleepiness or dullness and doubt and self-doubt. They're like waves and our practice is to learn to ride the waves. We're not learning to stop the waves. Waves will perennially happen like clouds will perennially come and go. Our job isn't to get rid of the clouds. Our job is to get rid of the waves. Our job in our practice is to be able to ride the waves consciously as they come and go. So the first, um, this is a long preamble, so we'll see how much time I actually get to talk about the hindrances. Um, Here's a little reading to continue my preamble. Maybe I'll talk about the hindrances tomorrow. So this is a autobiography in five short chapters by Portia Nelson. Some of you may know this. And it's a sort of a useful way of looking at our practice and also the way that we uh, forget and repeat certain habits that entrench our suffering. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. So again, relate this to your own experience. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it still isn't my fault, and it still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. 
There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down a different street. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> we do things again and again and again. We're convinced it's not my fault. We're convinced that we have no choice. Or it's just such a deep habit we kind of find ourselves there again and again. And over time we see it. Over time, with mindfulness, we see that habitual acting out, falling in the hole, blaming everybody else. And we finally go, oh, it's a hole. It's suffering to go down the hole. Let's walk around it. And finally, let's take a very different approach. So I talk about these hindrances not as a... um, uh, as information to uh, give your judging mind more fodder to berate yourself for not living up to, to um, Buddhist scratch, but to really inform your practice. But be watchful of how um, any teaching, and Buddhism being a very idealistic teaching, it's very easy for the mind to use it as a way to judge yourself. So the first principle obscuration or hindrance to our practice, to meditation, to clarity, to awareness, to freedom is the force of desire, the force of the wanting mind, the force of longing or the force of attachment. And the Buddha said the force of attachment is really what causes the whole of samsara, this world that we traverse, keeps it fueled. And when I talk about desire, when the Buddha talks about desire, it's very specific. Um, And then I'd like to make the distinction between wholesome desire and unwholesome desire. So there are many things that we have, and there's also neutral desires in a way, a neutral desire would be desire to go to the bathroom, drink water because you're thirsty, eat because you're hungry. A wholesome desire is something that leads to re- reducing your suffering. So a wholesome desire to practice, to meditate, to practice compassion, to be liberated is a wholesome desire because it leads ultimately to greater happiness. Unwholesome desire is something that It's a desire that fuels desire, that creates more desire, that creates more longing, more unhappiness. So an addict craving the next hit would be a classic example of how desire keeps us ensnared in more desire. Unwholesome desire also is the kind of desire that creates a sense of deficiency, creates a sense of lack. One of my favorite comics um, pictures from the New Yorker magazine is a picture of two goldfish swimming in this big ocean and one goldfish says to the other well Jake what are you hoping to get out of life you know, what's, what's your life plan and goal and Jake says well you know I want the whole deal I want the little round glass goldfish bowl and the little plastic gravel and the castle and the plastic grass and that's often how we live our lives. You know, we live in this vast ocean, this beautiful earth of abundance. <laughs> but we want this little, you know, new iPod or whatever the, the latest thing that we're fixating on that we think will bring us happiness. So unwholesome desire creates a kind of tunnel vision. We stop seeing anything except the thing that we want or the person that we want or the experience we want. Or it's a kind of desire that we're using to fulfill another need. So we often crave things because we just want to avoid feeling something or distract ourselves from something. So we go shopping or we eat or we, you know, whatever our little predilection is. Melda Marcus's was buying shoes. She had 4,000 pairs of shoes in her closet before they kicked her out of power. Clearly she didn't need the shoes. It wasn't about the shoes. So the, the thing that I find most useful to inquire into, to look into when working with desire, 
is to notice how it it creates that sense of lack, sense of deficiency with what is. We can be quite easily in any moment sitting quite contentedly, meditation or wherever, and then we think about something that we want, something that we have some particular craving for, some longing for, and immediately our present experience can feel lacking because we want this thing that we don't have. So it immediately sets up this sense of conflict or deficiency. And what can happen is when we buy into the belief that we need this thing to be happy, we immediately overlook our innate sense of wholeness, our innate sense of completeness. It's not that we don't want stuff and get stuff, but we, we are so easily buy into the sense that there's a, there's a sense of incompleteness or lack that needs to be filled up from the outside. And of course our culture likes to prey on that, sell us a lot of stuff to buy, to consume, to work hard for, to make money for, with the idea, the belief system that we'll be happy if we get, you know, fill in the blank. Rumi says, How long will we fill our pockets like children with dirt and stones? Let the world go. Holding it, we never know ourselves. We never are airborne. How long we fill our pockets with, like children with dirt and stones? How long we grasp for things that really um, well, clearly don't provide the satisfaction we're looking for? but clearly also sort of underestimate our own inherent value and worth. We go seeking things that um, take us away from knowing our inherent contentment or fullness or completeness. So we can see this on retreat, we can see it in meditation, we're sitting and the mind is just itching to want something, want something different than what's here. Want a different breath, want the room to be warmer, want your cushion to be softer, want your mind to be quieter, want the food to be different, want the coffee to be, is there coffee here? Wanting coffee to be here, um, or cappuccinos, or lattes, or just the way the mind is incessantly, the mind is sort of innately restless, and it's, uh, when I say the mind, the sort of egoic mind is inherently restless, inherently moving which is why it doesn't like stillness doesn't like silence doesn't like meditation moving towards objects looking for some pleasant experience to fulfill itself in some way it's the kind of mind that you'll find yourself saying if only such and such happens if only my mind is quiet if only my meditation was really peaceful if only it stopped raining. If only I'd brought my warm winter jacket. If only... And it's an endless list, have you noticed? If only when I get home... Anybody do house repairs here? You know, fixing up the house. If only my house, if only the bathroom was, if only my bedroom was... And it's endless, because by the time you finish, you have to start again. And these are all harmless. Desires are endless. Desires that come through the mind are endless. It's like the weather. It's like waves continually changing. And our practice isn't to stop the... We don't have to stop the desires. We have to be conscious of the desire so we're not caught in it and acting it out. Not believing it's the source of happiness. Not believing our happiness depends on getting what we want to be happy. So another form of the wanting mind is the way that we hold on. We try to hold on to pleasant experience. We try to hold on to pleasant experience when we're sitting. How many times have you noticed you get a moment of quiet or peace or stillness of thinking and there's a little excitement like, oh, finally, a little bit of joy, peace, bliss, calm, happiness, ooh. 
and we start to grasp, we start to hold on. Oh, this is really what meditation is. It's to be peaceful or blissful. And then we get attached. We grab something. And what happens? As soon as the grasping mind is there, the wanting mind, grasping and peace can't coexist. Grasping arises, the peace dissolves, the bliss dissolves, the the happiness dissolves. Joseph Goldstein talks about the grasping mind, the analogy of a grasping mind um, is like rope burn. We try to hold on to something, we try to hold on to the rope as we're falling, and what happens? We get rope burn. So notice the next time something very pleasant is happening, notice the tendency of the mind to hold on. And without judging it, just noticing that tendency, noticing the grasping, noticing the contraction in the body. When we're wanting something or grasping at something or holding on to something, a person, a situation, an experience, there's a tightness because we're not actually at ease with the flowing nature of reality. Nothing stays around. So the more attached we are to something, being a certain way or enduring in time, the more we'll suffer because nothing stays around. So as soon as we are in that place of grasping or attachment, we're immediately out of sync with reality. The nature of reality is to be fluid. And if we're unable to be fluid with it, then we suffer. So the important thing to remember with desire is, as I said, desires are endless. Desires in themselves are relatively neutral. It's our relationship to the desire that causes the suffering. We can have the strongest longing, desire for something as we're sitting, but if we're just simply watching it with mindfulness, it doesn't stick. We feel it, it comes, it's an energy, it burns through, and it passes away. When we lose that mindfulness and we grab onto it and go, yes, I really want this, I must have this, it's really what I'm looking for, that's when we suffer, because we, that's when we identify with the desire. We believe it. So pay attention to the belief system that fuels all of the desires that come through. The basic belief system is, if I get this, if I have this, if I hold on to this, I'll be happy. And we all know this on an intellectual level. And yet, how many times do we get swept up in believing it? And it's important to have compassion for ourselves. We live in this world where we've grown up with being very deeply conditioned to believe that happiness comes from the outside, happiness comes from things, happiness comes from money, from consuming, from shopping, from having, from doing. And there is a certain happiness that comes from those things, but it's not the kind of sustaining peace full happiness that the Buddha was talking about is possible. The kind of happiness that's available regardless of what's happening. But we need to have compassion because of the, the, uh, the condition that we've been through, that we live in, this world that's insane about bombarding us with messages. This is an ad that I picked up from a magazine called Outside, which is a sort of outdoorsy backpacking magazine. It's a picture of a, a man meditating like this. They all seem to meditate, meditate like this in the ads. I don't know why, because it would be very painful after about five minutes. <laughs> and he looks very happy. And he has all his stuff behind him, like all the stuff a man might want. He's got his kayak and his scuba equipment and his golf clubs, his laptop and guitar and dog and bike and skis and you know just everything that you know a young man might want maybe. He's also got this big uh, red 
pickup truck. And it says, underneath the ad, it says, Spence has put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. (laughs) Good American philosophy. (laughs) That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger. So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. So there you go. The answer is in Ford Ranger four-door supercar pickup. So it's funny, and it's you know it's a, it's it, I'm always very fascinated by how the culture and the media picks up the Dharma and meditation and Buddhism as a, as a way to sell stuff. You know, it's taking the very it's so oxymoronic that it's using meditation and enlightenment as a way to sell things, <laughs> which is so the antithesis. But anyhow, such is the madness of the media world. So, um, just a few things about working with desire. One thing that's interesting to pay attention to is to... Uh, when, we, when we talk about letting go of desire, releasing the wanting, releasing the attachment of the grasping mind, often it gets misinterpreted as letting go of the object itself. But actually what's happening is we're just letting go of the grasping. So, use this. I need a prop. So, so um, here's a lovely bell, and we might go, mm, great bell, I want to buy one of those after the retreat, I wonder where they get them from, I'm gonna, I, hope, I hope they sell them in the bookshop, and grasping, grasping, grasping. The grasping is, you know, we're, we're not seeing the object, we don't really experience it because we're seeing it through the filter of our wanting mind. I want it, I like it, I've got to have it, I'm not going to be happy till I take it home. And I can't steal it because I just took the precept. <laughs> so the, the wire is the grasping. We're holding onto the object. We, don't, we can't really be with it because we're seeing it through the lens of desire. When we talk about letting go of grasping, we're not saying get rid of the bowl, it's bad. We're saying get rid of the attachment that's binding the object. So you let go of the grasping, and then we experience the bowl as it is. Beautiful, Bowl. And I found a very important distinction that we're not getting rid, we're not pushing away. It's so easy to interpret letting go of desire as sort of pushing the world away. That's how often it's been translated through the through the centuries. That somehow there's something wrong with the world or objects or beauty or sensuality. That's not the problem. It's the it's the grasping, the attachment around it that causes the suffering. And then it's just what it is. It's the world, it's the earth, it's objects, beautiful. But we don't need to be bound by them. It's also useful to notice how desire, like everything else, is impermanence. Impermanent. I find it really useful when I'm meditating to um, really track the process of desire. Sexual desire, food desire, Dharma desire, whatever the desire is, they're all the same in principle. Noticing how desire comes, usually fed by the mind, often in reaction to a physical stimulus or memory. Desire comes, it kind of floods the body with energy, and it's kind of, sometimes it's very juicy and exciting, sometimes it's very painful with the longing. It arises, and then at some point, we lose interest or it just no longer calls our attention, passes away. To see how desires are impermanent, to see that we can watch them come and go without actually needing to act out on them, to do anything with it except be present to it, is very liberating. Because we see that we don't actually have to act out and fulfill these desires to be happy. What happens when these desires pass away into cessation 
is we usually experience a sense of peace. A sense of, ah, phew, glad that one's over. Until the next desire arises. But pay attention to that peace that comes when we let go of the grasping, when we let the desire just flow of its own accord. It's also useful to pay attention to what's fueling the desire. And as, as I talked about earlier, um, noticing how desire is fueled or conditioned by pleasant feeling. Something is pleasant, taste, sound, sensation, feeling. If it's pleasant, has a pleasant feeling tone, we grab onto it. It's pleasant, we like the pleasant, we like pleasure, we grab, we hope we want it to stay around. Notice that relationship between pleasantness and grasping. The Buddha talked that about that link in the in the chain of conditionality, how things how things arise in dependence upon each other. That that link between feeling something and craving is the key point in which we can intercept our experience so we, we can move from suffering to freedom. So that's desire. The opposite force of desire is aversion. Sometimes translated as fear and anger which represent the two poles of aversion. Aversion can be either recoiling away in fear, avoidance, denial, bypassing, escaping, ignoring, or moving towards the object with anger, hatred, rage, violence, cruelty, meanness, blame, frustration, irritation, boredom, and then all the other different flavors of aversion. Anybody notice any of those today? In the top ten? Sometimes I think we experience more, even though the Buddha talks about desire and attachment as being the cause of suffering, I think often in our experience, we experience more its opposite, aversion and resistance, because it stands out more because we don't like it, it's unpleasant, we resist it. When, when we, I think we see desire less because, one, we're desiring something pleasant, so we're kind of led forward and we don't sort of look and go, oh, is this suffering? And often it is, but we don't see it because we're kind of seduced into, into, the, into the object. With aversion, it stands out more because we don't like it. It's immediately like, ugh, no, knee pain, cold, Rain, backache, boredom, too long meditation, don't like supper, no coffee, my bed's too hard. You know, we notice the aversion very clearly, it stands out. And it's a great place to practice. It's a wonderful thing to see if we can welcome this aspect of our experience. Go, oh, aversion, hatred. Hello, old friend. Welcome. I hear you're the cause of suffering. <laughs> Let's take a look. How do you make me suffer? As it were, nobody makes you suffer, but how does this cause suffering? And of course, it's pretty obvious because the very experience of aversion and hatred is a feeling of suffering itself. We contract, it's kind of tight, we're sort of recoiling. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but that's sort of, uh, if we exaggerate the body language, that's how we are. It's like, oh, knee pain, ugh. Fear, ugh. Anxiety, oh, no. It's very different when we, when we have enough mindfulness to go, oh, aversion, anxiety. Oh, what does that feel like? Oh, it feels like this. Actually, some tomatoes main teaching about the Four Noble Truths is he has this teaching that says it's like this reality is like this aversion is like this hatred is like this fear feels like this anxiety feels like this okay let's feel it oh it feels like this 
it's tightness, it's cramping, my belly feels heavy, my heart's contracted. It's like this. When we can have that very simple approach, suddenly we, we, we slightly step outside of it. Mindfulness creates a sense of space around anything that we experience. So from feeling anxiety and hating anxiety, to just, oh, I'm anxious. It's unpleasant. It's kind of trembly, and my heart's tight, and my belly's knotted. It's like this. And suddenly there's not the reactivity. It's just, oh, it's like this. It's still maybe unpleasant. We still might not like it. Certainly don't want it. But suddenly there's not the sense of, I have to get rid of this in order to be happy. And that's profoundly liberating, to have that spaciousness and go, oh, unpleasant. Don't like it, don't want it, here it is. And at some point it's like, oh, it's just what it is, it's unpleasant. My favorite story from Inside Meditation Society in Barry is uh, somebody so much didn't like the food that one retreat he brought, he had so much aversion to the vegetarian food, he brought a little portable stove, cooker, and a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> And he thought nobody would notice that he was cooking chicken in his room. <laughs> of course, the whole building stunk of chicken. <laughs> so we can do a lot of funny things with our aversion. You know, we, we do a lot of acting out to avoid things that we don't like. You know. There was another story, actually, my, another story from IMS, where uh, one of my colleagues found a yogi... Uh, it was in the middle of the night and he heard all this rustling in the kitchen so he went downstairs, he was on staff and there was a meditator in the fridge, in the walk-in fridge with his hand in the big box of dates and my friend said uh, can I help you, are you looking for something? and the, and the guy said uh, I'm looking for the maintenance department <laughs> <laughs> so we, you know, we do a lot of things to avoid unpleasantness and we get lots of opportunity to experience unpleasantness, especially because we sit all day. We experience the unpleasantness of the body, the aches, the pains, the stiffness, the, the joints, the tensions, all the different emotions that, that, that swirl through, the sadness, the grief, the loss, the fear, the pain, that we can easily recoil and push away. When I was in India some years ago, on a retreat um, practicing in Bodh Gaya India is always an interesting place to practice as those of you who have been there and you probably heard some stories because there's lots of things to be, have aversion to you know, we're sleeping on straw mats on the floor there's lots of rats running around it's cold, it's damp and um, you know, smells and just a lot of things that you can kind of have a field day about having aversion to and no place to hide and this one particular year there's always some kind of noise thing going on music or weddings or festivals this particular year we had a travel agency kind of temporary store set up shop outside the monastery gates and uh, they had a uh, they stuck a loudspeaker on top of, on top of the, the travel agents and um, they were advertising bus trips to the Tibetan pilgrims who were walking past in the morning and the evening, thousands of them on their way to the temple. And the travel agency had this um, recorded message that was like an advert that they, were, they would play to the passing folks, Tibetans mainly. And it would go like this. It would go, it was like two minutes, it would start... Hello? 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 Does this work? Hello? 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 Sound like that. And then it would say some words in Hindi. And then you would hear Calcutta, Darjeeling, Bombay, wherever else in India, I can't think of. Madras, Varanasi. And then it would, some more words in Hindi which I didn't understand and then the, the tape would rewind you'd hear it hello 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 and you'd call the code like oh hello <laughs> you 
and then more words in, 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 in hello, Varanasi, Calcutta, Bagaya, rewind, hello, 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 hello. <laughs> and this was, this started probably, I don't know, the second or the third day of a 20 day retreat. And it was really loud, and everything's concrete, so there's no sound, nothing to soften the sound. And it um, started early in the morning, and it would go through all morning, and then we'd come on again sometime in the afternoon, till till 8 o'clock or something. We had a little bit of aversion, <laughs> a little bit of resistance, hatred, homicidal feelings, <laughs> rage, <laughs> violence. <laughs> And we weren't allowed to leave the monastery gate, the, the compound, the gates were locked. And, you know, so we couldn't you know, unplug it and sabotage it and do whatever we could to, to uh, dismantle it. So we'd pray for the, for the power to go out. You know, often the power would go out at that time of year. So we'd sort of you know, do our you know, <coughs> namaskars to whichever gods were operating the power system. And, and so, um, you know, so days went on, aversion, aversion, hatred, hatred, aversion, name, just being with it, being with it. Feeling the fury and the how dare they and the indignance and the righteousness. And, and it was complete misery <laughs> to be caught up in that mind state and to have this thing going on and on and on. And then at some point, as one of the beautiful things that happens in India, because I find I have to so surrender to the conditions forces my mind to just let go and stop trying to control my reality, my world, that at some point it just was like, okay, it's just sound. It's just noise. And when I let go of the resistance to it happening, was it let go of the resistance to thinking it shouldn't be happening and all of that story, then it just became noise, became sound, it would come and go, it would come and go. And it wouldn't actually cause any suffering because I'd let go of the aversion to it. It was still unpleasant, still unwanted, still didn't like it. Sometimes it was humorous when I had a lot of space. But it wasn't causing that contraction. It was just another sound like the sound of the wind. And it was a very interesting teaching for me to realize that we don't have to get rid of the object that we're hating in order to feel peace. We have to let go of the contraction and the aversion, which of course is very obvious until you're actually in the situation. <laughs> so reflect on that, that when you next time you're caught in something, you're reacting to somebody because they're breathing too loud, or it's too cold in here, or whatever thing you're having aversion to, your body, your mind, your heart, remember to, to reflect that Happy, your happiness does not depend on that object disappearing. Your happiness depends on your ability to release your resistance to the reality of what's happening. Another important place that aversion arises, and I think this is more a 20th century phenomena is how aversion can turn towards ourselves, how we can turn our hatred or resistance or dislike towards our own being, our body, our mind, our heart, coming mainly through self-judging, self-criticism, high standards, berating ourselves. Our practice isn't good enough, our body isn't good enough, our mind's not smart enough, Meditation is not quiet enough. Whatever it is, my, you know, we can judge ourselves for anything. My walking's not right. You know, often we walk around with that sense of whatever I do isn't quite right. It's just not how it should be. Everyone else seems to see, seem like they have it together, but whatever I do seems a little off. Anyone have the experience? Sound familiar? There's an ongoing sense of lack in some way. But pay attention particularly to how the judging mind, the critical mind operates because it's really a very clear manifestation of aversion. And to really see it as so, to see it as a form of self-hatred, to see it as 
to see it clearly so we don't continue to buy into it, to believe it, to support it, because we're just supporting a habit of hatred, a habit of suffering. The judging mind is in a very deeply entrenched phenomenon, yet also um, is something that we can work with moment to moment. It's just a thought. It's just a series of thoughts. A certain power only has a certain power if we give it, if we believe in it, if we actually take it to be the voice of truth or objective reality. Often I notice that when people come on these insight meditation retreats, the first thing they notice is how much they think. Most people it's like, oh my God, I can't believe how much I think. I'm always thinking. I'm always lost in thought. And often the second insight is that those thoughts are really pretty off the wall. They're often not very accurate, particularly about the thoughts about ourselves. And in a way, uh, self-judgment and self-hatred is a form of ignorance. It's a form of delusion because it's a way that we don't see ourselves clearly. If we have a deep habit of only seeing the negative, the problem, the lack, the deficiency, the flaw, you're not seeing the truth. You're seeing one fragment of reality. And it's very important that we come to see ourselves in our fullness, not just that which we don't like or want to change. So life and practice you know, provides a lot of opportunity for working with aversion. I drove down here part of the way from Hastings to Southampton with my dad, and uh, my dad hates traffic and seems to hate other cars, <laughs> other people driving cars. And it was so interesting to watch the mind state of aversion, you know, just to see how, and I, you know, I get in the same place, I'm not saying I'm better than my dad because I've been there equally, um, you know, conditioning. <laughs> but... Um, just to watch how aversive someone could get over the fact that there was traffic. And of course there's going to be traffic. <laughs> and to, it was just like, every time we hit traffic, there was a lot of frustration and anger and like, boy, that's really suffering over there. You know, of course I could say that with myself in many situations. So, again, just... so to see if we can invite, rather than pushing away the aversion, thinking it's bad or wrong or very un-Buddhist or whatever, see if you can welcome it. It's like, oh, aversion, hatred, resistance. Let me take a look at this. Let me understand it. Let me see how it feels in the body. What's it like to be caught in the mind state of rage or frustration or irritation or resistance? very unpleasant. The more we feel it, the more likely we are to release it because we see its suffering nature. And often we practice in meditation as a sort of unconscious way to avoid unpleasantness. I like people to be aware of this. Sometimes we use meditation and Dharma practice as a way to avoid stuff we don't like rather than learning how to work with our aversion to it. This is from Nisagadatta Maharaj, wonderful Hindu teacher from Bombay. The essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it's acceptable, it's pleasant. If it's not acceptable, it is painful. You will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, 
the source of all happiness and peace. So he's saying that, that the acceptance and the working with uh, unpleasantness and pain actually takes us much deeper than the pleasure does. And that's often very true in these retreats. We often come across against suffering, pain, discomfort, aversion. And we seem to grow the most when we're confronting and chewing on our suffering. It's wonderful when our life and our retreat and our practice is flowing, it's easeful, it's spacious, it's loving, it's joyful, it's blissful. And we welcome those as much as anything else. And we seem to grow more when we're struggling. Not that I wish struggle on anybody, but we seem to grow more when we're grappling with our pain. It seems to be the way of human beings. So we can use the suffering, the pain, the aversion, the resistance as a way of transforming ourselves, transforming our suffering, understanding how we relate to experience, understanding how our aversion causes suffering. And the most important thing, I think, in being with this hindrance is again to notice the, notice the condition, notice the cause. So usually we have resistance and aversion and hatred because something, some experience is causing us to feel an unpleasant feeling. Think about the times you've had aversion today and hatred today. If you traced it back, it probably is due to some unpleasantness. Unpleasantness in the body, unpleasant feeling, unpleasantness because of the weather, because of the food, because of your emotions, because of your thoughts. If you can just be, stay with and track the unpleasant feeling, we're much less likely to spin into reactivity. It's just unpleasant. We go outside, it's cold, it's damp, it's windy, we might not like any of that. But if we can just stay with the unpleasant feeling of it, we'd stop from moving into reacting, to hating, to wishing it was different. It's just what it is. It's cold, wind, rainy, damp, unpleasant, if that's our relationship to it. And good to know that no object has an inherent pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone to it someone might walk outside and go oh yuck I hate this weather it's horrible because they have a lot of unpleasant feelings associated with it somebody else might walk outside and go oh it's so refreshing it's cool it's moist it's windy it's very invigorating and how that can change for each of us so it's not in the object it's in our relationship to it so I have talked way too long and I've only got to two hindrances, so um, the three hindrances will have to wait. Um, the hindrances of restlessness, which I know you've probably been feeling some. The hindrance of sleepiness and dullness, which I know you've been feeling some because I've seen the nodding heads. And the hindrance of doubt, the hindrance of self-doubt, doubt about the practice. So I'll say a little more about those tomorrow morning. And again, I just want to reiterate that we talk about these hindrances as ways to understand what's happening in your experience because so much of our experience actually falls into those categories. And then when we see that, we go, oh, I'm caught in lust, I'm caught in desire, I'm caught in wanting, I'm caught in aversion, resistance. Noticing, feeling the suffering, noticing how we can disentangle ourselves. Just one last thing about working with aversion. Since aversion is a moving away from experience, one antidote with aversion is to move towards that which we are having aversion to. So if it's an aversion to physical pain, taking our attention and curiosity moving towards it, feeling it, sensing it. The Buddha taught the practice of loving-kindness as an a, um, antidote to working with hatred. Again, it's a moving towards somebody versus moving away. So I'd like to close with a... Uh, I guess it's a poem from Rumi called The Guest House, which is a beautiful way of 
talking about uh, welcoming these difficulties that come through our lives and our practice and how we can embrace them. This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. 